Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about spinsters. So anyone who has ever read a Jane Austen novel probably knows that spinsters abound in these stories. And while jokes about being unmarried and pressured to couple up is certainly still something that many people deal with today, it was really on an entirely different level in Austen's time. A spinster was truly a state to be avoided at all costs. Unless, like Emma Woodhouse, you happen to be very rich, which as we know is basically the game changer in all of these situations. Right. Yeah. As Emma tells Harriet at one point in the novel, I have none of the usual inducements of women to marry. Were I to fall in love, indeed, it would be a different thing. But I never have been in love. It is not my way or my nature. And I do not think I ever shall. And without love, I am sure I should be a fool to change such a situation as mine. Fortune I do not want. Employment I do not want. Consequence I do not want. Yeah, she is. She, she has no real reason to marry. And I love that she is so very like conscious of that. She's very self-aware of the fact that she basically has all of the status of being a married woman without any of the potential downfalls of making a bad choice, ending up in a bad situation. You know, she basically has it made. And that's why she's such a really powerful figure in the novel. And that's why she's so unique, I think, in Austen's work as well. Um, and I think that you have to know that about Emma in order to appreciate where where her plot points are even coming from. Yeah, exactly. So because spinsterhood um, and spinsters in general are such, I mean, it's just a ginormous, ginormous topic. So we're going to structure this episode today a little bit differently than we usually do because it's a broad topic. And it's one that's woven throughout Austin's works. They, they, they just crop up everywhere. So this is more of a kind of a cultural context overview episode rather than like a, a deep dive into a specific text. What we want to do is make sure that this trope of spinsterhood becomes really accessible to modern readers. So even though this is a big topic, you can come at it from a lot of different angles. This is something we'll probably be revisiting in future episodes. We're going to be talking about it in, in this kind of large, broad strokes idea of what spinsterhood looked like in Austin's time. Another really important scene where we can ground our conversation around spinsterhood is also from Emma and the scene at Box Hill, where we first have Emma insulting Miss Bates in front of their entire group, and then later Mr. Knightley reprimands Emma for her conduct, while also fairly clearly delineating Miss Bates's financial and cultural situation. So Knightley starts to uh, reprimand Emma, kind of saying like, how could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? And he really kind of explains why it was such an insult to her. Because even though, you know, Emma's like, oh, she didn't understand it. It's all fine. He's like, no, this was really inappropriate. This was a really poor action on your part. So he's really unoppressed. And he's like, you know, this wouldn't be so bad if she were your equal in situation, which we've already explained why Emma is such a unique figure. You know, but he's saying, Emma, consider how far this situation is from being the case. So here's the quote. She is poor. She has sunk from the comforts she was born to. And if she lived to old age, must probably sink more. Her situation should secure your compassion. It was badly done indeed. You, whom she has known from an infant, whom she has seen grow up from a period when her notice was an honor, to have you now, in thoughtless spirit, and in the pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece too, and before others, many of whom, certainly some, would be entirely guided by your treatment of her. And he's, he's really not pulling any punches. He's saying like, Emma, it's not okay for you to do this. But also he's framing the fact that Miss Bates is in a situation that is going to continue to deteriorate because of her spinster status. There's a certain element of, you know, if you wanted to go ahead and just throw barbs at Mrs. Elton, whatever, I wouldn't say anything, but this is unacceptable yeah. because like you said, of Miss Bates' status within the community. So let's define the idea of spinster a little bit more concretely here. 
So a spinster was and, and is an unmarried woman. I don't think it's like a term that gets tossed around nearly as much today. Thank as, goodness. Right. Right. But, you know, again, like I said earlier, we can still see that pressure that people might feel, especially depending on their social circle or their family cultural context, to marry at the right time and to the quote unquote right person. And of course, you know, like unmarried men get to be cool bachelors. Right. But yeah. if you're an unmarried woman, you're an old crone of a spinster, basically. So, <laughs> and, and what is the cutoff for this, right? Like... So especially in Austin's time, like a Spencer's going to be a woman of a certain age who is seen by those around her as unlikely to marry. And perhaps today, like maybe people aren't really going to toss that term around until you're, I don't know, like at least in your late 30s or 40s or something. But in this time, you are getting haggard old crone status. Let's say 24. Certainly, <laughs> certainly by your late 20s, like you might as well start planning your burial at sea. It's all <laughs> over for you. Oh, man. And um, that's that's an unflattering look for... Uh... <laughs> For anyone. <laughs> but I think I think it's really important to point out here that when we're talking about spinsterhood and this particular idea of like, oof, 24, and this is where we get that phrase kind of like on the shelf kind of context, there is a pretty narrow focus on women of a certain class when we're talking about spinsterhood. So this is the people who, relatively speaking, even for this time period and with limited choices and rights for women are extremely privileged. And they have a lot more choices available to them. So this is these are the people who have wealth in their own families that set them up for a kind of success that's not accessible to the vast majority of individuals and women in England. So we're talking about members of the gentry here. That's that's our specific group. Most women outside of the subset are women who worked in the household services. Uh, so this, this would be women who worked in, in service as maids or as cleaners or housekeepers, etc. This would be sex workers, shopping assistants, skilled trades like seamstresses, lots of other subsets of women and, and class are available here. So we are talking about extreme privilege today. Yeah, it's a very particular brand of spinsterhood that Austen really focuses on in her novels. Yeah. So a little bit of etymological fun on the word spinster. I know everyone's very excited. <laughs> the word of the day today is spinster. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> As Cassia St. Clair notes in her book, The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, which is really, truly one of my favorite nerdy nonfiction reads, weaving was typically thought of as women's work, like historically speaking, especially as it was something that could be done from home. And spinster was originally an occupational term referring to any woman or girl who spun fiber, but eventually began to be used as a term for unmarried women. This may also be because spinning was often a good financial option for unmarried and childless women. According to St. Clair, quote, spinning, lace making, sericulture, which is like working with silkworms, embroidery, and other textile related crafts could give women economic power and status. In England in 1750, for example, spinning was the most common paid form of employment for women and a relatively lucrative one at that. Single women were estimated at the time to be able to spin around six pounds of wool per week. A married woman could probably only be able to manage two and a half pounds. So essentially, spinning was one road to financial independence and thus spinsterhood. I mean, who needs a husband when you have your spinning wheel, really? <laughs> but I think, I mean, the financial independence, that's that's crucial to what we're talking about here today. And so, and so it makes sense that the term that we're talking about, even though it's kind of related to marriage in the way that we view it now, it was originally founded in this idea of like, are you financially stable? And I think that's a really important way to kind of understand spinsterhood, especially in this context, right? And again, like, I feel like we keep hammering this home, but I, I do feel like it's just important to note that, you know, what I just read here is this example of, oh, women having these options for having a livelihood, which wouldn't really be seen as an option or a choice for, you know, the women that we see in Austen's novels. Again, right. that very narrow kind of focus of society yeah. that she's looking at. Of course, like, in theory, it could be an option, but sure. only an option if they wanted to basically be ostracized and kind of shut out from the community that they'd been raised in. Yeah. 
And so that's why there's this kind of negative connotation that comes with Spinster in Austen's novels and her, her time period and for this specifically privileged class of women. So even though marriage was obviously no guarantee, no guarantee of lifelong felicity, especially at a time when women were essentially the property of their husbands, it was essentially one way of kind of like locking down financial security for yourselves um, because your husband was financially responsible for you, even though you were essentially his property. So if you make a bad choice in marriage, you are stuck in a terrible situation for many, many years. But, you know, the flip side of that is marriage at least is supposed to land you in lifelong financial security. And that's and that's not a small thing. <laughs> it's also giving you a certain amount of social status as well. Yeah. And so and so this gives you a little bit of independence, a little bit of kind of stability that for women in the gentry is not a secure thing at all. You are so reliant on men for everything that that's why spinsterhood becomes something to be feared is because it also comes with the connotations of insecure financial income and stability. And I think this is a perfect example of how like it can be easy to read Pride and Prejudice and kind of be like, oh, Mrs. Bennett, wow, so yeah. annoying. But when you put it in the context of her being, I got to get these girls married off. Otherwise, what is going to happen to us? Because as soon as Mr. Bennett dies, this house is entailed away. We will have nothing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's also where we get the idea of like the marriage market. And it's it's a gross way to think about women as goods. But at the same time, it's a market for the women as well. It's like, where am I going to find my next, you know, where am I going to land in the next couple of years? Um, and there's this real desperation for women to land somebody as a as a financially a financial backer essentially <laughs> for the rest of your life because there are so few options for women outside of this if you are of Austin's class and none of them are particularly good. No, it's like I'm looking for some venture capital for my life. Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And so it sounds mercenary and it is mercenary, but it's because the cards were so stacked against women of this class. This was your job. Like, this is what you were supposed to do. This was your career. You were supposed to lock yourself down, you know, a reasonably wealthy husband. Yeah. And you're supposed to do it when you're like 16 to 24, which is, you know, just when you want to make all your most important life choices, <laughs> right? I think we can all agree. We don't like the fact that this was the way that the system worked for women, but you had to work within this structure. Otherwise, like I said, you, you know, your options were quite limited. And I mean, like, you know, what, what are some of the options that are available to you if you don't get married? There's only a few routes you could go. Speaking of women within this class, these were the options or professions that would still allow you to be <laughs> received by your family. One of the kind of most common options would be as a companion. So this could be an actual job that you applied for and, you know, needed references for, or as they always say in the books, a letter of character. <laughs> or it could really be the sort of situation where you were basically just like taken in by a wealthier family member who kind of treats you as their gopher slash piece of furniture. A great example of this in Austen's novels would be Fanny Price. Like this is essentially the situation that she is in. And while she's not at an age yet where she would be socially considered a spinster, she is already occupying that space and she would quickly age into that role. Yeah. You know, like yeah. give her another 10 years and she is solidified as the spinster of Mansfield Park, just there to basically wait on everybody and just kind of be like, like background furniture that you only notice when you need them. Yeah. And even notice that when when Fanny chooses to get married at the end of the novel, like Susan's right there to step into her place as a companion. Like there's always somebody that's going to fill that in for Lady Bertram because she, she needs someone beside Pug. Really, when you think about the kind of precarious social position that Fanny is in, it makes the fact that she defies her uncle and holds firm to rejecting Henry Crawford huge. Just backbone of steel in that moment yeah. because he's basically saying – you won't even be able to be here as our like unpaid companion, which is already not a great situation with the way that Aunt Norris teaches her. He's like, I will send you back from whence you came. Yeah. And 
she's kind of like, mm, no, thank you, Henry Crawford. So. Yeah. So, I mean, like, if you ever thought Fanny was a weak character, you are incorrect. That is, like, a super gutsy move on her part. Another option for you, if you choose not to get married, is the route of the governess. And that is what we see Jane Fairfax kind of being set up to to take on in Emma. Um, and so the idea that she's getting ready, you know, she's got all the accomplishments that would prepare her to be a governess. She knows she's going to have to go out and actually make her money if Frank doesn't come through with his proposals. And there's a part where Mrs. Elton is really pushing for like, oh, I've got a place for you. I've got a place for you. And, and Jane keeps putting it off because she'll do pretty much anything to, to not have to be a governess. And so she's waiting for Frank to get his act together. And that's like one of the things like at the end when Frank finds out that she had accepted and was intent. He's just horrified. Yeah. Like, you know, my baby, <laughs> she can't do this. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not it's not an ideal situation. And I mean, and if we ever needed to kind of see why being a governess is not like the ideal situation, I mean, like, have you read Jane Eyre? <laughs> Anytime you're at Thornfield Hall, you're seeing her interactions as a governess, and it's it's incredibly lonely. And that's why when she finally talks to Rochester and says, I'm a human, you know, it's, again, hugely transgressive of her to do that. And at least like in a situation like Jane Eyre, she has a friendly rapport with the housekeeper. Yeah. We see in Emma, obviously, the example of Miss Taylor, who basically had the ideal situation as a governess. But the reality, and I, I do think we see that in sort of the anxiety coming from Jane Fairfax, is that you were entirely dependent on this household that you went to go live with. You were not really like going to be able to hang out with the servants because they were going to think you were above them. But you weren't a member of the family. Yeah. Um, again, Miss Taylor's situation being very very kind of distinct. I think in many ways we can kind of read that as that is supposed to be one of the redeeming elements of Emma's character. Right. She loves Miss Taylor. She genuinely loves her. And, and you know, and even Mr. Woodhouse is like, he could, she could just live here for forever. She doesn't need to go. <laughs> but like, that's a roll of the dice. Like, you don't know what you're going to end up with. Yeah. And you also can't ignore the risk for women in households for sexual assault. Like, yes. that was a very real thing. And if it happened... You have no recourse. You have no one who's got your back. And you lose your position. You lose your livelihood. Yeah, it's a really lonely and isolating place to be a governess like i know that jane Eyre makes it kind of seem like redemptive because she gets to marry rochester but like seriously this is not something that you want to pursue as like your life goals well and in her situation it's contrasted with her early yes. life circumstances so it all feels like magical in comparison <laughs> but and i feel like we have to say i think most people who are listening to this podcast know but i see it enough online that i'm just gonna say here right now Jane Eyre People by Charlotte Bronte. Jane Eyre is by Charlotte Bronte. Okay, we can move on now. <laughs> in, in no way related to Jane Austen. No, even though we have conflated the two right now, not connected. Yes. <laughs> so another possible option for you would be to go be the hostess and sort of lady of the manor for a male relative of yours. This would be really managing the household and again, sort of being the lady of the house from an administrative standpoint. So you know, approving the menus, overseeing the rearing of the children. Like maybe you go live with your brother who's a widower and he's basically like, I can't deal with my own children. Like <laughs> I need you to oversee that, you know, that sort of thing. So that was also a possible option. Again, very much dependent on having somebody in your life who needs you to fill that role for them. Yeah. And you're also a stand-in because if they get married or something like that, you're out, you know, it's, it's, exactly. it's a very tenuous position again. And very much something that I see a lot in historical romance where the heroine has like a pretty good situation and then her brother or uncle or whatever up and marries. And now instead of being the hostess and the lady of the house, you are now relegated back to full spinster status. Yeah. Like just overnight, it's totally changed. And like the only other option is essentially to just be reliant on your family members full stop. Like any male family member that's going to be willing to financially support you. Like that's your only other kind of recourse as a spinster. Yeah. 
And that is something that I think Austin does particularly well in Sense and Sensibility. Like we can really see the way that the Dashwoods are treated by their brother, John, whose father asks him oh, like on his deathbed, like, please take care of your sisters. He's like, I definitely will. And then he's like, maybe I won't. Yeah. And so their mother is expecting like, because her husband said, I talked to John. John like, promised. He, yeah, yeah, he's going to take care of you. So she's like waiting and waiting and waiting. And of course it never actually happens. They find themselves in, again, relative comfort compared to many people of this time, but compared to where they were, like it's definitely a huge come down. And I think Austin does a great job I don't know. That's one of my favorite things about Sense and Sensibility is just how she really focuses in on the limited choices for these women. And Eleanor in particular, just like trying to manage the household budget. And yeah, <laughs> especially because it seems like no one else in her family is thinking about it. Yeah. And that's the the realities, the day to day that Austin herself is like very familiar with, right? The fact yes. that she is constantly, she actually moves multiple times in her life because she's being shifted between brothers and households that are able to accommodate her at different times. And so it's in Sense and Sensibility, when she talks about those economies and those movements and that being at the whim of somebody else, like she is speaking from her own experiences. Well, and then and then talking about Austin as a spinster is kind of, I think I think we have to kind of address this a little bit more specifically, right? Because the way that Austin is perceived by, by generations of readers is been through this lens of spinsterhood. So people are like fascinated with her love life and how would that have changed the way that she looked at things? Because for some reason, we, we feel like we need to view her that way. So some pe- sometimes people try to paint her in this very genteel, retiring sort of way, and sometimes as an argument for why her books shouldn't be taken seriously, because like, why would we take romance advice from someone who was never married, which is obviously a load of rubbish. But, <laughs> you know, we, we do get this idea that people are kind of weighing her books in the balance in regard to her own personal circumstances. So this is when like, when we get like D.H. Lawrence, um, who's a modernist, he says, oh, she's a narrow gutted spinster to to which my eyes cannot roll hard enough. He's like, these books are not sexy enough. I don't like them. Because D.H. Lawrence likes to make things just roiling with sexual tension. He feels (laughs) like, like Austin has nothing to add because she's, because she doesn't have a torrid love life. I think, I think it's so, it's so D.H. Lawrence, first of all, but it's also, you know, I think I think as a way to examine Austen's novels and what they have to provide us, looking at it through a lens of spensterhood is incredibly narrow. Unless you're talking about the fact that like, look at this badass author who is making a financial income for herself off of her works because she's making spinsterhood work for herself. She was like, I will spin books, not wool. Look at me go. That's right. And she nails it, right? <laughs> And I mean, and who knows what was in all of those letters that Cassandra burned. Like, oh, sure. we don't know. Yeah. There could have been something salacious going on. But like, it's a sort of judgment that I feel like is not placed on male authors yeah. who never married. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We never are like, oh, well, you know, he was a bachelor. So what does he know about X? You know, that's never something that we frame for male authors. Austin also doesn't back away from things that are filled with sexual tension and what's happening in couples' marriages in her novels. I mean, like, we have an episode coming up on the Rushworths' divorce, and there's a lot of material in there that really speaks to, like, she knows what happens in these relationships. She knows what's happening in the life and world that surrounds her, and it's because she's so aware of it, she's able to translate it. She's like, oh, really, D.H. Lawrence? Let me put a sex scandal in my book. Thank you very much. (laughs) Take that! 
So going back to where we see spinsterhood in Austen's novels, can you talk a little bit more about Miss Bates? Yeah, so so Miss Bates, like she's she was our starting point for this conversation. I think it's important for us to kind of come back to her and kind of expound a little bit on her options. So Miss Bates, um, as we see within this entire novel, has actually been reduced in circumstances from when she was born. And Knightley tells us that. But we actually get details all throughout the text that really pinpoint how much her circumstances have changed and how much her circumstances are constantly in flux. So for instance, she originally lived in the house that the Eltons are living in. That was where you know she she actually lived in that parsonage with her family. Um, so she had a very stable childhood and growing into adulthood. But as the novel continues to kind of unravel what's happening with her, we see that she's living in relative poverty, you know, in rooms with narrow space. She can barely fit Jane Fairfax in. And it's because she is reliant on this like dwindling income because it's all that's been passed on to her and she has to make that work. But she's, I mean, she's likely somewhere in her in her mid to early 40s, I would imagine. Again, to kind of frame it in terms of what's her financial stability, she's only in her 40s. She's got a long road ahead of her. Exactly. And, and the fact that she doesn't know what her financial situation will look like 10 years down the road, etc. Which is why it is so huge that Jane Fairfax lands Frank Churchill. And oh, listen, yeah. I get that many, many people do not feel like he's a great prize. I'm not a fan with the boy's character either in many ways. But when you think of how rich he is and the fact that Jane was looking at, I'm going to go be a governess, which is barely going to enable me to support myself. Maybe I can send a little bit of money back home to now be in this position where I'm sure Frank probably just has plenty of cozy little cottages all over his estate yeah. that, that they could move, you know, Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates right on into. So she is now in this position because of who she married to take care of her grandmother and her beloved aunt in a way that we would imagine she would wish to. Yeah. And again, it's all entirely happenstance. Like this is not something that they can control. They get lucky. Yeah, she cannot go to college and like apply for this job. Yes. <laughs> so I would like to apply to be the wife of this rich, slightly silly, hopefully reformable guy. Exactly. <laughs> Miss Bates is one of our most overtly framed spinsters, but there's other characters within Austen's works that kind of have spinster elements, right? Well, I think with Miss Bates, it's because, you know, we see her as a spinster a little bit later in life. Again, LOL, in her early 40s, probably. (laughs) But, you know, we see her in that state. And at the end of the novel, she's still a spinster. A spinster probably in much better circumstances because she can go live with Jane Fairfax and like, presumably like dote on her children for the rest of her life. But most of the other examples we have in Austen's novels are women where you kind of see them on the cusp. And then ultimately things resolve for them again, through marriage. So first example, our favorite, Anne Elliot. I don't know if you guys know this, but Anne Elliot, so old. So she's just, old. <laughs> she's a haggard old crone. Everything is over for her. She's 27 at the start of the novel. I mean, people, I just really want you to think about that. She's 27. I started thinking more and more about how, like in 30 years, if they're doing an adaptation of Persuasion, if they're going to cast a woman who's like 50 or something. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> because it just, yeah. I think to a modern audience, like more and more, you're like, what? She's 27. Um, <laughs> So again, so Anne Elliot, she's 27 at the start of the novel and essentially thought of as completely worn out. She's firmly on the shelf. Like everybody around her is just like, oh, Anne Elliot, so sad. Really didn't work out for her, huh? It is curious though that we do have her kind of juxtaposed with her older sister, Elizabeth, who while older, she's not really seen that way. I think that's likely due in part to her looks. Like Austin describes her as sort of being handsome as ever. She's like, oh, there's some women who, you know, even 10 years later are just as good looking as they were when they were younger. And that happens to be the case with her. But I think it's also very much due to her status as her father's hostess. Like she is playing that role, which again, if her father were to remarry, which is like definitely a risk with Mrs. Clay, which she seems to be the only one who doesn't pick up on. Yes. 
she would then go from being in that more Emma Woodhouse situation to being like the sad spinster of the household who's relegated away while Sir William's new wife gets to make all the decisions. And it's pretty clear that Elizabeth is, you know, at least somewhat cognizant of the fact that you know, she has a pretty good situation going here, but marriage would be better. Um, there's, this, there's this quote where Austin says that Elizabeth, quote, would have rejoiced to be certain of being properly solicited by baronet blood within the next 12 months or two. <laughs> so it's like, you know, this is working out okay for me. But if like a sir so-and-so wanted to come knocking within the next year, a lord even better, like that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why she's making eyes so hard at Mr. Elliot. Because she's like, ooh, lock that oh, yeah. down. I've got my situations wrapped up in a nice bow. I would love to go from being Miss Elliot to Lady Elliot. Yeah. But so she's she's aware of it, but she's still very socially viable in the way that she's presented in the novel. Whereas Anne apparently is just like, there's no hope. Well, Anne has just turned into like a dusty leaf on the wind. So <laughs> Poor Anne. Her bloom is gone. The roses in her cheeks have just turned into dusty old potpourri. There's nothing left. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because, you know, Anne is 27. And in Sense and Sensibility, Marianne actually has something to say about 27-year-olds. So she actually says, this is Marianne. She says, a woman of seven and 20, said Marianne, after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. Like, there's <laughs> no hope after 27. Like, give it up. No, no hope it's for you, over. Anne Elliot. And no hope for you either, Charlotte Lucas, right? Charlotte is 27 in Pride and Prejudice. It is the dread age for women in Austen's novels. <laughs> Last stop, ladies. Like, yep. just, just hop on up on that shelf. Game over. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte is actually a really interesting case too, right? Because she is facing down spinsterhood as well. At 27, she's aware that she has limited options as well. It's a really a subtext in the book that Charlotte doesn't really like say anything about this overtly, but within the 2005 adaptation particularly, we actually get a very clear kind of outline from Charlotte about what she's facing. Um, when she's when she talks to Lizzie and says that she's accepted Mr. Collins' proposal, which obviously to Lizzie is like the most horrific option. But Charlotte in the in the adaptation is really upfront about it. She's like, I'm 27 years old, I have limited options, I'm already a burden on my parents. Like, don't judge me. She is really upfront about it in the adaptation because because as modern audiences, we might not have picked up on the subtext of that. And so I think the fact that the adaptation puts that right in front of us makes us maybe have a little bit more sympathy for that choice, even though it's kind of like, ugh, Collins, yikes. It's still financial stability. It's it's a choice that makes sense for her. It's one that, that I think that, that Lizzie judging her, if that's what Lizzie's doing, it doesn't make sense. I think we really see clearly, like, she knows what she's about. She can see in Collins, okay, is he the most charming guy? He's like a really benign option, right? Yeah, he's a really benign option. He's not going to be cruel. You know, he's not going to, like, gamble away all their money. You know, like, all the things that you would have to worry about as a woman if you're choosing between spinsterhood and marriage. Because, again, there is a risk with marriage as well. For her, this is a really good option. As long as she pays due deference to uh, Lady Catherine, he basically worships the ground that Charlotte walks oh, on. Yeah. You know, like yeah. when Elizabeth goes to visit them, she's like, okay, I see how this has worked out. Like you've basically convinced him to spend a lot of time in his garden and you guys have like separate sitting rooms. So you essentially never see each other and you are living your best life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like Charlotte Lucas is a very savvy woman. But spinsters show up. I mean, spinsters are such a big trope. They show up everywhere, right? They are a huge trope in historical romance. That's right. It's Diane talking about historical romance again. <laughs> I feel like you typically either have a wallflower spinster. I mean, don't worry about her, people. She's secretly very hot. You know, she's all that style. Don't don't even worry about it. 
Or she's going to be a blue stocking spinster, you know, like she's a lady scientist or something. And she's possibly, in this circumstance, very conventionally attractive, but she's basically chased all the men's away with her huge brains. So that's why she's unmarried. But someone will come along to appreciate those huge brains, exactly. right? And if we're talking about um, a modern setting, I do feel like this comes up a lot in rom-coms, your Hallmark movies, mm-hmm. etc. all things that I very much enjoy. <laughs> You know, the heroine is always portrayed at the start at the start of these as needing a fresh start, like all caps, because she's just been wasting her life on whatever guy she just broke up with. Right. Like right. Mr. Big Money, who lives in the city, and he, he, she just found out that, you know, he was cheating on her or whatever. And there's this whole sense, usually at the beginning of this films, of like, OMG, you better get your life sorted real quick. Otherwise, you will be alone for forever. <laughs> like, this is it. This is your last chance. Go to this charming, cute little town that has a gazebo with twinkle lights and... Like, figure it all out. And again, in the circumstance, the heroine's going to be like, what, 24? Maybe 27? Maybe 28? But she knows. She better find true love before she hits 30. Otherwise, it's over. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Oh, so so this idea of spinsterhood. I mean, it's, it's a really complex topic. But I think it really boils down to, like, what were the options available to women in this particular social class? And it's a really, it's a really kind of fascinating thing to dive in deeper if you if you wanted to. Yeah. And, and like we said, this is something that we will, I'm sure, be continually touching upon in future episodes. So unlike women of 27, this is not our last stop on the train. So <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out additional episode details on our website, the thing and email us at the thing at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we'll be talking about Sir Walter's favorite book. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.